everybody. Welcome to the Hop and Brew School podcast. I'm your host, Justin Crosley. And I'm Nick Ziegler. And we are back to bring you another great episode of Hop and Brew School. And uh, Nick, I'm excited about this one. Yeah, me too. It's uh, I think it's going to be your, the first episode where we've actually got to interact with listeners a little bit. Exactly. It's the first time that we've gotten to address listener questions that have come in, uh, which is always fun for the Brewing Network to do. And uh, by the way, you can send your listener questions to Hop and Brew School at thebrewingnetwork.com. It's Hop and Brew School at thebrewingnetwork.com. And uh, we'll get to every single one of those that we can. Uh, we do answer you on the air, just so you know. So if you don't get an immediate response back from us via email, just to Tune in to a later episode when we do another uh, Q&A, and you're likely to get an answer to your questions that you send in. So before we get to the questions, though, Nick, I'm excited because I've been looking at my calendar and making my plans, uh, and a couple of big things are coming up. Uh, first of all, we got HomebrewCon coming up next month. Oh, yeah. Providence, Rhode Island, and the Brewing Network is going to be there. Yakima Chief Hops is going to be there, and we're going to be doing some live Hop and Brew School episodes from the Homebrew Expo. Yes, so please come by and harass me. I mean, no, wait. That's uh, right. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be setting up live there with the whole YCH crew, and uh, we'll be doing a few episodes from HomebrewCon. Um, so I hope you're coming out to join us for that. You can go to homebrewcon.org if you need to find yourself some tickets to that. And then also, as the closing party on Saturday, June 29th, the Brewing Network's 14th anniversary party is going down. Oh, nice. Yeah. 14th anniversary party. Uh, it's at the FET Music Hall. I've got a little surprise music guest coming. And YCH Hops is our VIP hour sponsor. Ooh, I didn't even know that. Yeah. Okay, cool. I've, been, I've been working behind your back. And <laughs> uh, well, you know, that's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of space back there. So <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, everybody will remember our good friend, Corporate Alex, and I've been working with him, and we are going to set up just a cool VIP hour for you. So you can go over to thebrewingnetwork.com right now, and you can find tickets. Uh, there's two separate tickets. you got to get VIP tickets if you want to come into that party, uh, which gets you in an hour early, and um, you get to hang out with us in a little more intimate setting. And the guys from Melvin Brewing are going to be there, and the guys from More Beer, and we're we're going to do a little Q&A session on stage and get you guys some special treats. So there's that. Or you can get your $35 general admission ticket. Come on in. And the coolest part about the whole thing is it's all you can drink craft beer. But please do it responsibly, guys. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, I limit the hours of the party for that. They told me, they're like, you can have the hall until 2 a.m. And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That would be a disaster. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, no, that's, um, I'm really looking forward to this because uh, HomebrewCon uh, is always a blast. And this, this year to be there with not just myself, but uh, Tommy Yancone or Brewer and uh, Tiffany, our sensory specialist, is going to be really fun. So we're going to be offering sort of uh, experiences that we haven't done in the past, uh, and we're going to try to help you guys learn a little bit more about the hops and sensory stuff, and uh, it should be pretty fun. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. So go to homebrewcon.org, get your tickets. Also go to thebrewingnetwork.com, click on the event there. You can get tickets to the party, and I hope to see you there. Get your tickets before they sell out uh, for both events, I would say. Uh, okay, and then also as I was looking Looking at my calendar just a little bit further, we've got the actual Hop and Brew School happening up in Yakima. Yes, sir. Uh, so that'll be uh, Labor Day weekend, and we uh, chose that to hopefully help people be able to attend because in the past it's been sort of midweek, and that sort of conflicts with brewing schedules and a lot of people's, you know, we don't necessarily want to force people to take vacation days. Right. So we kind of scheduled it around Labor Day the weekend this year. Um, so that'll be the 29th or August 29th through September 2nd. I think it's the 30th. 30th through, through the 2nd. Second. Second. My bad. Yeah. Well, I just don't, you know, I want people showing up at your house, Nick, you know, day early. Uh, that would be awkward. Um, <laughs> yeah. August 30th through September 2nd. And uh, it's, I, you know, I'm really looking forward to it. I've never been. Uh, several people from the Brewing Network uh, staff and and good friends of the show have, have been. And all of them just tell me how great it is. So this is going to be my first year going and I'm pretty excited. And we're really excited to have you all out here. Uh, so because it's it's a beautiful time of year. It hasn't quite 
it's started to cool off a little bit, so it's not the uh, mid-July death, uh, heat death. Um, but it's uh, just as some of the early harvest is starting, so you'll be able to see the hops just on the vine and, and really get an understanding of, of what they look like and how they behave. And so the schedule is uh, Fridays is a welcome reception at Bale Breaker from 4 to 8 p.m. Saturday, it's the official start of the home brew, or Hop and Brew School. Uh, that's 9 to 5 a.m., and we're going to be over at 203 Division, which is uh, where my offices are. Uh, and then um, Sunday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., we get tours and a bunch of sessions. Uh, there's an evening reception there as well. And then Monday from 9 to 5, we're having some more sessions and these are educational sessions, seminars, uh, breakaway. So there's speakers and, and breakaway sessions. And um, I can give you some of the, some, uh, I guess, previews of, of what's coming up. Well, let me uh, ask I, you this. Sure. I heard a rumor that your keynote speaker this year, and I'm hoping you can confirm or deny this, is Vinny Chalerzo from Russian River. Happy to say that is the case. That's true. Awesome. We have the Grandmaster. Very cool. What a great, okay, what a great, he's like the Hop Master, so what a perfect keynote for Hop and Brew School. Exactly. It's going to be, I mean, it's going to be a blast. Uh, I'm really looking forward to having Vinny out and and basically listening to to him share his knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Um, All right, what else can you tease us with? We've also got Denny Kahn. Uh, he's going to be talking about uh, American noble hops and how he's been using them to well, apparently great success. And we've been actually having a really good time with some of those. I love that um, guy. Denny's a great guy. Oh, yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a blast. It was really funny last year. Uh, he sort of he saw me and he was like, hang on. Are you the Nick Ziegler from like the Tasty Brew days? I was like, yep, that's me. Oh, <laughs> so you're I, kidding. I've known wow. him since like 2000. Oh, God, no. 19... 19- Wow. Uh, wow. So it's pretty funny. Um, We've got Trolls Prawl from White Labs talking about yeast, and we're going to be addressing some biotransformation questions. Uh, That's going to be interesting because we're we're having to start a bunch of experiments to to really try to figure out what's going on. And, you know, it is really hard to disentangle actual yeast activity from biotransformation that occurs sort of natively in a changing environment. So this is going to be a fun series of experiments to, to design, but it's going to be really interesting to have trolls talk about it. That's great. And we've got another guy, uh, Justin, uh, Justin Bruce, I believe is, uh, he's talking about hops in fruit and pepper beers and how to balance them together. So that's going to be pretty interesting to talk to, to hear about too. Wow. All right. So a lot of good stuff happening. Once again, it's August 30th through September 2nd. You don't have to remember all this. Just remember to go to yakimachief.com slash events. That's yakimachief.com slash events, and you can register now. And the whole weekend, the four the four day deal, it's three hundred bucks, which includes admission, most of your meals, and transportation to and from the events and the hotels. So it's it's one heck of a deal if you're looking to go uh, drop some hop knowledge in your in your noggin. Absolutely, and the uh, the party. These are pretty dang fun. So and you're going you're gonna to hang out with a, a bunch of pretty cool brewers. So Very cool. All right. You have to put up with me. So <laughs> I'm driving my RV out there. Is there somewhere I can park it that, uh, you know, that I won't be an eyesore? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's totally fine. Beautiful. we got space for you. Just put me in the middle of the farm somewhere. I'll be fine. Yeah, <laughs> just pass out in the middle of hop fields. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, as promised, we've got your listener questions today. Uh, and once again, you can send your questions into hop and brew school at the brewing network.com and we'll address them in a future show. All right. So the first one we've got here um, from. John, he writes in, uh, first, I wanted to say how much I love the new podcast. It's dense with a lot of technical information, which is right up my alley because because of my engineering background, he says. So my question is in regard to the oil fractions episode. He says, when brewing batch to batch, should I be adjusting my hop additions, uh, Whirlpool and dry hop, based on the total oil and oil fractions to try to achieve the same each levels in each batch. Uh, he says, this is something that I haven't tracked in the past, but the beers have come out the same each time, according to my palate. Have I been getting lucky with the variation of oils from batch to batch, or am I unable to tell the difference either due to my own thresholds or the difference in individual oil fraction quantity varies so slightly that it's undetectable. Thanks for all the info. Uh, it's given me a lot of more variables to play with. Keep up the great work from John. What do you think, Nick? Well, um, yes, that would be my answer. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so the, 
there's a couple different things going on here, so let's disentangle this a little bit. So what he's talking about is um, adjusting the hop additions throughout the process to try to create the same beer. So they're like hops are an agricultural product, and throughout uh, throughout the harvest and depending on where where the hops come from, there's always going to be subtle variations within each each variety or brand. And that's so we we try to target to make sure that we have a you know sort of a nice range within which that's the, that's you know the the three standard deviations from from the mean, which is going to be our target range for that variety to be true to type. Right. Some people address this by blending all of their lots of hops together to create just one version of that variety. Um, but that's pretty complicated to do. Um, personally, at Yakima Chief, what we like to do is actually celebrate the variety uh, or the variation within the variety. That's complicated to think about. Okay. We like to celebrate diversity. How's that? Love and it. the way we do that is creating sort of blends or, or individual lots for big brewers. And so they have to really uh, pay attention to those oil oil profiles. And so not just the quantity of oil, but the quality and characteristics of that oil. So what are the fractions in there? How much linalool? How much geraniol? How much, you know, beta-pinene and all these different compounds? Uh, we don't we're not yet at the point of putting that information on the bag. Um, so that's something that you want to, to, to bear in mind. But if in, in general, if you are using, like, say, a mosaic with 2.3% oil, any other lot of mosaic that is pretty close to 2.3% oil will smell and taste pretty much the same and deliver the same results. But that's because within each variety, those uh, those oil profiles are, are very stable. Okay. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. And, and just so I'm clear, all that information is available on the website, you know, how am I even finding the, this, this oil, you know, quantity? So you can type in the lot code of your hops on, uh, in our lot lookup tool. Okay. Uh, and that is on yakimachief.com. And I believe it's under explore, which is on the top banner and tools. And, uh, there's a bunch of little, uh, you can do lot lookup tools and some other stuff, or is it under hop varieties? Anyway, there's a bunch of different tools that we have on the website, and I encourage you to explore. Um, and so, yeah, if you go to uh, shop.yakimachief.com, that's our new e-commerce site. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can go to Brewing Tools, and there's Brewing Lot look, lot Analysis Lookup and Brewing Calculators. And we're going to be adding more and more to this as, as we go on and develop these tools for you all to use. But if you look up your lot, um, it will tell you the alpha, beta, and then a spread of, of the various uh, – constituents in the oil fraction. Got it. Okay. So there was another part to this question, which is that he's saying uh, he hasn't tracked these in the past, but the beers have come out the same each time according to his palate. And uh, he's, you know, is John getting lucky with the variations of oils from batch to batch, or is he unable to tell the difference due to my thresholds or the difference in individual oil fraction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So really... One, I sort of answered the first part of that, which is that we try to minimize the variation, and that's because we don't release a variety until we know that it's stable. So that, mean, that means that a mosaic of a given oil uh, percentage will always have about the same, or very, very close to the same split and same, same uh, division of those oil fractions within that total oil. Uh, secondly, is, is he unable to tell the difference due to his, low, to his thresholds? That's possible. There are some like there's some things that you're just not gonna notice really, or or it's also because of the way you're brewing. So if you're using the hops in the same way each time, then they're gonna behave pretty much the same each time, regardless of this oil content. Well, I mean, again, you have to be you have to be at least close to the original oil content that you that you made. So I mean, like a one percent oil hop is gonna uh, deliver a very different uh, uh, character than like a 2% oil hop. But we would never have that wide of a variance from our, our, our that range that I was talking about earlier. I understand. Okay. Does that make sense? It does. So yeah. you're never going to have like a 4% oil citra or, you know, a 0.5% oil citra. That's not, those, those are way outside the normal range. And we would look at those and see, hang on, this is not true to type. What's going on? and go investigate that field to see if there's any sort of off types or anything like that. Got it. Understood. 
Okay. Um, and finally, I guess uh, just something to, to, to be aware of is that depending on your hop contract and your, the size of and the, the quantity of hops that you're buying, uh, you might be eligible for selection. And so uh, that's about, I think it's 5,000 pounds is the minimum. And if you're a professional brewer, you come on out and you, you get to rub the different lots and you, you we process those from that lot for you into the formats that you that you choose. Wow. Year on year, there's always going to be variation. And what we've been finding is that certain brewers really have certain preferences. And so, again, that goes back to this celebrating variety um, or celebrating diversity of, of, of what the hops offer us. And so in that situation, then you really do want to pay attention to the specific oil fractions because if you're trying to – if you've got like a, you know – a big one of your core range beers, and that's that's the majority of what you're producing, and it relies heavily on I don't know mosaic or citra or laurel for for the dry hop character. You know there is going to be variance, and over time you might either try to keep it exactly the same, in which mm -hmm. case you really have to pay attention to that, or you might realize that it's improving or changing in, in a way that you hadn't originally envisioned, and so you want to keep following that trajectory. And so you really have to pay attention to uh, how you're using the hops and what those oil fractions are so that you can make the best beer you want. And there's always two schools of thought on this, which is either keep it the same and just release another beer that's very similar or, uh, you know, continuously improve and, and, and don't be, don't be scared to, to change your, your original recipe into something that you prefer. Got it. You know, yeah. I, I, I fall very much in the, uh, in the latter category. I really like to just continuously change and adapt. Um, and something that we got to remember is as human beings, we're really, really bad at remembering good stuff but we're really good at remembering sort of negative attributes. So I can guarantee you, Justin, that if I asked you, hey, uh, thinking back to middle school, <laughs> uh -oh. you're just going to go with, oh, God. Every embarrassing thing. All the yeah. So it's the same thing for flavors. So it's much, much easier to have an association in your mind with something that you don't like or something that you had a bad experience with than something that you had a good experience with. And I, I've told so many people this is that even though I remember this one double IPA that I made as the best IPA I've ever had or something like that, you know, yeah. uh, and I've rebrewed it, A, my tastes have changed and my awareness of, uh, you know, off flavors and different characteristics have changed. Um, and back then I was less experienced. So that IPA was flavorful. It was very flavorful and it had some really good aspects to it. But when I rebrewed it using the exact same system about 10 years later and looking at the same hops, because I knew I did have the lot codes, so I knew I, I knew what those oil profiles were, um, it really wasn't as good as I remember it. Right. And that's because I had put it on this pedestal in my mind and it started – and every time you remember something, every time you recall something, the way human memory works is that you're actually overwriting the original memory. Okay. Which is kind of crazy to think about. So I was overwriting it with – better and better smelling hops and smelling hop aroma, uh, in my own mind. And, you know, the data just doesn't bear that out. So when you think that, Oh, that one beer in the past was the Holy grail, it probably wasn't. Understood. So yeah. don't worry about that so much. Just try to make the best beer you can now and going forward. And just keep up with the consistency as best you can. Keep up with the best consistency as best you can. Um, or, or, or at least have a consistent improvement. And I think um, uh, Terry Farndorfer said this, God, a decade ago or more, and she said that, you know, every beer I put in front of you should be the best version of that beer you've ever had. Mm -hmm. And I want the beer that you had. So if you come in on, on May 31st or May 30th of 2019, on May 30th of, of 2020, that same beer that you had on, in 2019 should be a hundred percent better mm, yeah. than uh, the 2020 should be a hundred percent better than the one you had in 2019, but you shouldn't be able to notice the difference. I see. I like this and philosophy. So yeah, it is. 
it's really good. And uh, one of those, I've gotten to, spoke to speak to her a little bit about this, but one of the things that I sort of started to target when I was running breweries was a maximum of about 10% improvement per batch. Okay. So you're slowly drifting the palate towards where you want it and not making an immediate change because that can get, uh, that can put people off. Got it. Understood. Okay. Well, how about this? I'm going to get us to a quick break so we can hear a word from our sponsor. And then when we come back, we'll do a little bit more of our listener questions. Sound good to you, Nick? Sounds great. All right. Hang in there, folks. You're listening to the Hop and Brew School podcast, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Hop and Brew School podcast, and thanks so much for hanging out with us today. We are still answering your listener questions, which can be sent to hopandbrewschool at thebrewingnetwork.com, and we'll answer your question on a future show. All right, Nick, this one now. Now, this guy's into it. This guy's into the show, uh, and he has sent us several questions. Cool. <laughs> so, and he, he, he sounds like he knows what he's doing and, and really wants to make better beer. So we're going to ask a few questions from this particular listener. Um, so here we go. First one, if you advocate for dry hopping in a pressurized vessel, do you think that the DMS will be absorbed from the headspace into the beer? He says, I typically rack and dry hop in a keg, and after two days, I'll raise the temperature two degrees for 24 hours, which he's calling his diacetyl rest, and then pressurize, and then cold crash, and then rack to a serving keg. So DMS is the question, I guess. Okay, so yeah, that's interesting. I've never had a problem with DMS getting absorbed back into the beer, but that's usually because I brew beer and it doesn't have DMS in it to begin with. So if you follow good brewing practice Got it. Uh, and you're converting all that SMM into DMS and it's volatilizing out of your, out of your kettle, then you shouldn't have a problem. Okay. If you have DMS uh, that's still resident in your beer, I would suggest you address that first. Good point. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and typically rack and dry hop in a keg, and after two days, we'll raise the temperature two degrees for 24 hours for a diacetyl arrest. Uh, I don't know if he's saying centigrade or Fahrenheit, um, but then pressurize and then cold crash and rack to the serving keg. Yeah, I mean, that that'll work. Uh, two degrees, if it's Fahrenheit, I think it's probably a little bit low, and uh, I would... So he's dry hopping a keg, and then after two days is raising the temperature. Yeah. You know, you can combine those two together and raise the temperature at the end of fermentation and dry hop, and then crash cool and press, pressurize, and then, and then crash cool uh, or cold crash, and then and then rack to a serving keg or something like that. So no need to uh, wait no the two days. There's no reason to split them up. Sorry, that? Yeah, no, like you said it. Yeah, no need to split them up. No need to wait two days. Uh, no need to, yeah, you can do it at the end of fermentation. And so as soon as fermentation's finished, um, you can go ahead and dry hop. It will, and let the temperature rise a little bit. So I, I, I one of the things that I advocate is sort of the in-fermentation diacetyl rest. And so uh, as Jamil has said, and, and many people have said, you know, since time immemorial, or at least the last 10 years, is that you want to ferment on a rising temperature profile. So if you dry, if you, if you drop your temperature during fermentation, you're going to introduce uh, some, some character, you're, you're going to potentially trigger dormancy. And that can lead to uh, acetaldehyde, it can lead to some off flavors, it can also lead to incomplete fermentation. So basically what you want to do is, you know, about, with about 30% left or 50% or even for some beers left of your uh, expected fermentation, so you're, you're starting your OG, uh, and then your target fermentation is your FG. Um, you know, once you're about halfway between those two numbers, you can start, just basically let the temperature rise up to about 24 degrees C, which if I recall correctly is like 73 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and then you can cool back down after, after fermentation is finished. And what that does is, yes, it, it speeds up the, the yeast activity. And so they will ferment uh, a little bit faster. But most of the off flavors and, and flavor generation from, from yeast occur in the first couple hours of fermentation, in that first 30%. Okay. So once you're about 50% or 70% of the way through fermentation, they're not really going to produce uh, excessive esters or other characteristics. And so you can then let them finish high. They'll increase their activity. They'll scrub out the diacetyl faster. And it'll also be a little bit warmer so that when you dry hop, if you, if you, or if you cool to drop your yeast 
out. And when you dry hop uh, at that little bit warmer temperature, you're going to get faster extraction. Um, and then the enzyme activity of the hops will also act faster, which can lead to that, that hop creep. But then there's still going to be enough yeast there to, to deal with it, to, to scrub it out. And uh, you'll be able to get the whole process done a little bit quicker. All right. And in fact, we had another question come in, I think, similar to that. Um, and forgive me, I, I, I can't. I'm not even going to pronounce the name right, but it's, I think it's Ilka wrote in, uh, you know, thanks for putting on the Hop and Brew School series, uh, and then asked, yeah, to prevent diacetyl formation, one of the techniques calls for dry hopping a bit earlier into fermentation. I was wondering how much hops one would have to introduce. Well, we are actually looking at that right now. So... Uh, Shellhammer's lab um, and Kaylin Kirkpatrick, she's now out at Cornell Extension um, doing brewing and, and winology. Um, they started looking into this and we're trying to continue that work because we're not entirely certain how uh, well how dependent the enzyme activity is on enzyme volume rather than substrate quantity. Um, and in plain English, basically, we're not sure if, it, if, if what matters most is the amount of unfermentable sugars left in the beer or the quantity of enzymes added via the hops. Got and it. we're, it's looking like it's much more related to the uh, residual sugars in the beer rather than the total quantity of hop matter. Um, so... In terms of addition-wise, uh, if you can do it, you know, towards the end of fermentation when it's not, uh, when it's really not kicking off all that aroma and there's not not a huge amount of yeast left in suspension, I would advocate doing it then. Um, and we've had luck with just like an ounce uh, in in homebrew scale. Okay. So, because you don't want to have too many or too much hot batter in there for too long at too high of a temperature because it can it can get kind of veggie and salady um but at the same time you also are trying to get rid of and you also don't want to have uh, too much hot matter in there to or the, all have all the hot matter in there bind to the yeast and drop out when you cold crash got it okay and by the way uh we just did a, a brew strong podcast that was talking about uh, ibu calculation um, and we did it with Aaron Justice from uh, Ballast Point, just uh, published a research paper on this. There are, are lots of reasons, um, things that happen when hot material drops out, or any material drops out for that matter, um, and, and how it affects your bitterness as well. Yes. Uh, so we've actually uh, seen this, and we've st we're starting to give brewers some feedback on their systems based on this, but we're seeing, like, you know... Your your bitterness calculations are really based on what you're expected to get at the end of your process. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Uh, your total like final beer uh, final beer bitterness. Well, in the kettle and in the whirlpool or at casting, you know, even even in the fermenter with uh, when when your yeast is first in there, you know, for a, a 35 or 40 IBU beer, we'll see like in excess of 150 IBU, which is definitely not what's the, what the volume is. But but then you see it all all drop out with the yeast or you see it all drop out with the, the tube in the, in, in the whirlpool cone. So you're having to add way more than you actually want, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And that's what, uh, that's what Aaron was, was finding, you know, that, they, that their, their calculation just wasn't matching up to at the end of the process and they wanted to know why. And of course there are all sorts, you should listen to the podcast. Um, uh, it's, it's on Bruce Strong here on the Brewing Network and, and he goes into better and, and more detail than, than I can. But the, the gist of it is that through every part of the process, as things drop out of your beer, IBUs go with it. Um, and they cling to different matter, uh, whatever that might be, yeast, um, hop material. And, and, and as those things drop out, so do IBUs. So Yeah, and it's, it's not just IBUs. Uh, that's one of the reasons that I, I advocate not dry hopping during fermentation, like during active fermentation, because a lot of your oil compounds and a lot of your delicious flavors that you're going after will drop out with the yeast as well. Got it. Okay. All right. Same listener. And forgive me, I didn't have your name from the email, but also writes in. Um, this one's about dry hopping a fruit beer. Uh, when dry hopping a fruit beer, would you add the fruit and dry hops at the same time or fruit and then add the hops after the fruit fermentation? 
has finished. And he says, right now I'm fermenting in a conical and racking into a keg with fruit for three days and then adding dry hops for another three days before crashing. Uh, yeast being removed along the way, he says. What do you think there, Nick? This sounds beer dependent, right? This is very much beer dependent. And not only is it beer dependent, it's fruit dependent. So uh-huh. this is, and actually this is what's going to be kind of cool because Justin Bruce at Hop and Brew School is going to be talking on this exact subject. So I'm excited to hear what he says. Uh, but in my professional career, I've had a bunch of different, uh, different techniques really. Um, so there's a, and let me, let me go back up a little bit. So when you're adding fruit to a beer, it's going to really kick off the fermentation again. Uh, and it will also change the pH of your beer pretty dramatically. And that's going to have a uh, big impact on not only the actual chemistry of, of, of aromatics that's occurring in the beer, but also on the perception of those, of those characteristics. So it's real. it really is, as you said, Justin, it's going to be beer dependent. Um, but in general, what I would say is that I prefer to add hops once the primary production of CO2 has subsided. Does that make sense? So, because I don't want all that, all those aromas to, to be carried out with that fermentation. So, but you're talking, uh, just so I'm clear, you're talking about the second fermentation that will happen when you add fruit. You want that to be completed. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So, because uh, you want to make sure that the the hops are, you're you're keeping all the aromatics inside. Um, Got it. At the same time, as well, you need to be you need to be paying attention to what your beer tastes like after the fruit's been fermented, because it's not going to taste just like the fruit. It's gonna it's gonna be different. It will have changed character, and so you want to match your hops to that flavor, not to uh, the fruit flavor fruit flavor on its own. Understood. Okay. So uh, the listener goes and said, uh, right now I'm fermenting in a conical and racking to, into a keg with fruit for three days and then adding dry hops for another three days before crashing. And yeast is re- being removed along the way. The yeast getting removed is crucial. And uh, I think that he's, you know, he or she is, is doing it pretty, is doing it the way I would do it. Okay. Um, however, there are some other tricks that I've learned over the years. And um, it, it, this, now this very much depends on the fruit. Because the fruit, fruits will ferment differently, and some fruits have uh, certain characteristics and certain compounds in them that change dramatically after fermentation. So um, one of the things that I have found that can work really well for keeping aromatics in a beer is using the fruit to carbonate the beer. And so Mm. basically the amount of sugar, you calculate the amount of sugar that you've got in your fruit or your fruit concentrate and, you know, assuming that it's all okay. So cherries work fine for this, raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, um, a lot of those work really, really well with this and grapes as well, um, is that you calculate the amount amount of fruit you want to add for your fruit flavor and see how much sugar that gives you. And then you can do like a, you just your regular priming calculator based on that in your tank or in your keg. Um, and you'll see how much, uh, how much carbonation you're going to get out of it. And then you can either uh, pressurize to bring yourself up to the remainder or just use fruit to spun the whole thing. What that does is that it keeps all the aromas inside the vessel and therefore in the beer. Um, which is which is really really cool because you get you can get the the flavors and these delicate aromas from other things that are really difficult to get in there. Strawberries being a real pain to get to stay in the beer. Um, so in that particular case, if you're going to be spunding with the fruit um, or honey, this is one of the ways I used to make a, a honey IPA was to dry hop with the honey at the same time, and that kept the hop aromas in the beer and it kept the honey aromas in the beer. Um, and the same thing works for fruit. That's an awesome technique. I love this. Now, are you then just serving off of the fruit, or are you you are racking carbonated product into another vessel? Then uh, we were yeah. So we would um, we would actually so which I've done on a homebrew scale. So it's not. I just obviously it's a little more difficult than flat beer, but it's certainly not impossible. No, not at all. And in fact, if you're if you're because you're you're using a sorry about that. If you're using a, a pressurized vessel, um, you'll be able to. You have the capacity to put top pressure on things, and you have the capacity to put to put back pressure on things. So what you do is a closed transfer between your kegs, um, and I would actually recommend putting a strainer in there because sometimes fruit can get real gunky. Right. Um, okay. But but you're gonna be be running the beer under pressure 
from one keg, your 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 fermenting keg or your your secondary treatment keg, into the second keg, and all you have to do is make sure um, that the pressures are about the same. Got it. And that you won't have any CO2 breakout. And you can do that with a balance line, um, or you can do that just by having a, a pressure relief valve or regulator on on the receiving keg to make sure that uh, that you're moving just fine. Okay. And you're not you're not blowing stuff out. Uh, obviously, your, your your sending keg is going to have to be a little bit higher pressure, but but not substantially to sure. get flow. And of course, as you you know, and you're going to do this by making sure that the pressure is about the same about the same in each vessel. Um, let's just state clearly, make sure you entirely purge the new vessel with CO2. You don't want to yes. be, you know, and it's a great way to just uh, cleanly transfer beer without O2, actually. So. It's, and that, this is, I mean, this is what I advocate to everybody um, is purge your kegs completely. Yeah. And I do it the lazy way, which is, uh, you know, I, I, I clean all my kegs and then I have, um, I sanitize one keg and then I save that sanitizer because I know all my kegs are clean and then I just push all of that so I fill, fill it to the brim with with the, my sanitizer of choice um, either PAA or, or Star Sand or whatever it is you're using and then I fill it to the absolute brim and then I push all of that sanitizer out into another keg using CO2 and then I've got my purge, 100% purged and sanitized keg ready to receive beer. Yeah. And then every keg after that is going to just be like quick transfer that sanitizer out. And so everything basically, I sanitize all my lines and purge everything at the same time. I like it. And it's lazy and it works great. Just remember to reduce the pressure on the receiving keg before you start racking into it because otherwise you're going to have a lot of foam and uh, yeast being blown up from the bottom of your racking cane in your carboy all over the kitchen in your face uh, just before you're going to a wedding. <laughs> right, so uh, right. uh, do pay attention. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's see. Another one. Uh, same listener. Um, and this is, again, I think going to be about hop creep. But specifically, will the enzymes used to make Brute IPA break down the same unfer unfermentables that the enzymes in hops break down for hop creep? I would suggest that yes, because the amylases that you're adding, uh, the fungal amylases that you're adding or the bacterial amylases that you're adding are uh, – so, so he's, he's talking or she's talking about a product called uh, amyloglucosidase or trizyme. There, there's a bunch of different brand names. But these are enzymes that are derived from either fungus or other microbes. Um, and they are pretty indiscriminate. They'll break down just about every sugar that, that's, that's available. Um, and hell, I mean, some of them even break down paper. So it's pretty cool. Uh, but uh, they're, since they're so indiscriminate, I would assume that, yes, they break... Uh, they break down those unfermentables that might lead to the hop creep. However, I'm not entirely 100% positive, yeah. but based on how they work and my experiences, that they're going to probably do that for you. Well, we're going to do a future show on yeast and hops as well, and, and we can dive further into that. But I do, I guess I just want to add a, this kind of a question, maybe just a comment. If, if your theory is true, though, Nick, if they do break down similarly, then a that would lead me to believe that a brute IPA, a dry hopped brute IPA, would be even more susceptible to hop creep than a normal IPA with, with, a, with, a, with a Cal Ale yeast or something. Um, because now maybe we're breaking down those long chain sugars even further. We're, we're doubling down. Well, that's not really how uh, these enzymes work. Okay. So... Uh, it depends when you add the enzymes, though. That's a good point. So if they're so there there are thermally stable and thermally labile uh, enzymes, and that means that either some will uh, continue to function at very high temperatures, i.e., mash or even whirlpool temperatures, um, whereas others will be denatured because enzymes are proteins. They'll get denatured by those high temperatures. So if you're if you're creating a, a brute IPA by adding enzymes to your mash and you're using thermally labile enzymes, which means they'll they'll break down uh, under heat, then 
you could end up with some unfermentables at the at the end of the process, and then adding hops will uh, result in uh, in a, a, a very slight gravity reduction for those for a couple of days until the yeast consumes that, and then produces the acetal, and then reconsumes that or uh, alpha acetate. Sorry. Um, however. If you are using the stable enzymes, and if you're doing them, if you're adding them uh, at the beginning of your process to your fermentation, uh, the enzymes will chew through everything, and you won't have that that hop creep bump at the end because the sugars will have already been consumed. In fact, that's one of the ways that people. Uh, there's two ways to attack uh, diacetyl issues. There's uh, the addition of alpha acetolactase. Uh, decarboxylate, which is, or ALDC, uh, decarboxylase, sorry, uh, <clears throat> which is to, to make sure that the compound that would turn into diacetyl can't because it's changed shape. Um, or you can just consume all the sugars to make sure that there's no, uh, there's no, there's no more sugars for the hop enzymes to act on, and therefore you won't have uh, that spike. Um, and you can actually combine both of them. So... Okay, and we're actually going to talk a little more about ALDC after we take a, a little break here. So um, you want to do that now? We'll, we'll take a quick break, and we can come back and, and wrap up a couple more listener questions. Sounds good to me. All right. You're listening to the Hop and Brew School podcast. Uh, here's a word from our sponsors. Welcome back to the Hop and Brew School podcast. We've got just a couple more listener questions coming your way here. And thank you guys. Uh, thanks so much for, for writing in, everybody who did. You can do that at the Hop and Brew School. It's, sorry, it's Hop and Brew School at thebrewingnetwork.com. You can send us your questions that way, and we'll be sure to get them on air. Um, okay, so Mark writes in, and this one, as I said before the break, is going to be about ALDC. And I'm going to try to pronounce exactly what that is. You're going to help me, uh, Nick. Actually, you let me fumble and then <laughs> help me. Okay. Uh, and, and even before, so I'm going to ask the whole question, but I want you to break, just start simply for me and actually explain to me again what ALDC is before we answer the question. But here we go. So Mark writes in that we have mentioned um, alpha acetolatase dicarboxylase. Oh boy! Oh boy! Well, I'm gonna give you a I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a pass on that because it's actually spelled wrong there. Yeah. Um, okay. And it's alpha acetolactate decarboxylase. Got it. Okay. Or ALDC. Yeah. And he's <laughs> <laughs> okay. So he says that we mentioned it uh, to eliminate diacetyl, but I didn't quite understand why you were talking about keeping it sterile. Is that something you can use at a homebrew scale? And he says that my main intent here is to have uh, my homebrew not go through a diacetyl phase during bottle conditioning so I can enjoy it sooner. Oh, he's like me, uh, impatient. So he says, sounds like uh, maybe I just need some appropriate yeast nutrient, maybe a cervomyces or, or um, and but he says, I'm curious about other solutions, and I don't mind cheating. So like I said, can you just break down ALDC and then answer Mark's question? Well, you don't want to break it down, actually, but yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so um, let me back up a little bit and explain the process of diacetyl formation in beer again. And this is something that we covered in the Hop Creep episode. But um, <clears throat> yeast needs certain things to... Uh, to survive and divide and ferment. And so um, in particular, some of those things are amino acids. And the amino acids in question are valine, isoleucine, and leucine. And if it doesn't have enough of those uh, in its environment, meaning it can't just you know eat them off of the bouquet or, or not bouquet, uh, the banquet table that we're, uh, uh, that we're offering it, um, then it will have to synthesize them itself. And in order to do that, uh, the, the pathway is, is pretty well established, um, or is completely well established. We understand how it works. But it has to synthesize something called alpha-acetolactate, because that is the precursor for the chain that moves down to eventually valine and leucine. Now, um, if it does that, the way um, biosynthesis and many metabolic processes in organisms function are that it will build up a store of, of the precursor molecules until it gets the signal to 
that it has enough of the final product and then stop. And it's just basically um, like you would do in a business is you want to make sure that you have all of your inventory up, like all of the materials you need to make uh, to meet demand for your final product down the line. And you want to make sure that you can, you're never hampered by, by having uh, by, by a lack of ingredients basically. So the signal will, so that the yeast needs valine or isoleucine or leucine and it starts making alpha acetolactate. And then the next step in that chain starts to occur and it starts synthesizing valine and leucine. Um, and then once it has enough, the signal goes from that, uh, that, uh, amino acid, amino acid synthesis pathway back to the alpha acetolactate, uh, synthesis and it basically stops and then dumps all its alpha acetolactate into the beer. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. So, um, the problem with that is that alpha acetolactate, uh, alpha acetolactate, um, chemically oxidizes into diacetyl. Um, and it requires very, 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 very little oxygen or any sort of oxidation activity for that to occur. So what happens is that you've got all this free alpha acetolactate floating around the beer. It's going to turn into to diacetyl. Now, bizarrely, even though the yeast needs to make alpha acetolactate, it doesn't uh, reabsorb it directly from the environment. It doesn't have the capacity or the or the 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 mechanic or I guess not the mechanics the. Uh, the systems to do that, uh, which is which is weird. Uh, I'm not sure, quite sure why. But for some unknown reason, it will reabsorb diacetyl, which is of no metabolic value to it whatsoever. So finicky. Uh, go ahead. Finicky little bastards. Finicky little bastards. But they give us beer, so I love them anyway. Yeah. Um, so basically, what you're what happens is um, you can you can adjust this in two ways. Uh, you can provide the yeast itself with a bunch of the appropriate yeast nutrient, which would be containing the valine, isoleucine, and leucine, uh, as well as some of the lovely lipids. And that's that's where Servomyces comes in and is, is, is really nice because it's basically just dried yeast hulls. Um, you can also be real sketchy um, uh, or, or, or clever, as the way I, I like to think it, is by adding branched-chain amino acids uh, from, like, myprotein.com or from... Uh, GNC, GNC is pretty expensive, but when you know, find find a good source of them, and you can get vegan ones and non and, and non-vegan ones. It's up to you. Um, but if you just add a little bit of that, because that's in a two to one to one ratio, is isoleucine, leucine, and valine. And so, using body bodybuilding supplements for your yeast does have a positive impact on uh, on diacetyl formation. Um, does that make sense? Yes. That's, it's, it was it was it was hilarious when I found that out, um, and uh, we started doing it, and it worked pretty well. And it worked, um, yeah. So one of the things then, if but if you uh, you know if you're if you're still having issues, um, you can use uh, alpha acetolactate decarboxylase, which is an enzyme that decarboxylates uh, the alpha acetolactate, which basically means it knocks off a little group and changes the the shape of the molecule, so it can no longer turn into diacetyl on its own. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what this does is it changes the shape and it makes it just completely neutral and it has no, no flavor implications whatsoever. Okay. Well, that sounds easy enough. It's real easy. Yeah. Uh, and when I said it, when I said it, when I mentioned keeping it sterile is that, you know, I've never seen it in a, in a jug smaller than, or in a, in a bottle smaller than 500 ml. So, or half a liter. So, which is, I guess, half a quart. So okay. pint-ish, yeah, maybe. Yeah. I'm not good at American measurements. Um, so, uh, you know, keeping it sterile just means making sure that you're not uh, introducing infection into your beer. Because you want to put this in in uh, the cold wort side, not on the hot side. Okay. And you can put it in at the beginning of fermentation. Got it. All right. Good question, Mark. Yeah. And uh, it's not cheating because, you know, this is a this is an enzyme that occurs naturally. And uh, honestly, cheating is one of those things that, uh, well, I don't think using modern techniques is cheating. I think it's efficient and smart. So the more we learn about this stuff, uh, the more tools we get. Um, and, uh, you know, let's not be bound by tradition for tradition's sake. Okay. If it's for a personal challenge. You know, go ahead. You do you, man. But we know if, if it doesn't make an actual difference, why the heck would you spend the money, time, and energy to to do something less efficiently? Right. Okay. Makes sense. All right. 
going to go back to Ilka's email, and forgive me, Ilka, if that is not your name, but it's just spelled odd to me. Um, now, part of this I think we already answered. I'm going to read the whole thing anyway, but I think what we want to answer here is really the the one about no, the part about noble hops here, because I think we already talked about the diacetyl fermentation. But uh, Ilka writes in, uh, hey, guys, thanks for putting on the Hop and Brew School series. I'm really enjoying it. Um, do you have a question about hop creep, which I think we've covered. So this was uh, to prevent diacetyl formation, one of the techniques calls for dry hopping a bit earlier into fermentation and was wondering how much hops one would have to introduce. And we covered that uh, in the last segment. Um, but uh, goes on to say, uh, also, it was stated in one of the shows that noble hops have more enzymes. Uh, is there any way to tell which hops are high in these particular enzymes? And I assume Ilka means the enzymes related to hop creep. Yes. So uh, a point of clarification, and it says that noble hops have more enzymes. We're not talking about traditional noble hops like Hallertau, Perler, or, or those guys. Ah. What we're talking about is the American noble product. Got it. Um, and that is the concentrated uh, bract material um, that is uh, part of the cryo process. So cryo is the concentrated lupulin. American noble is the concentrated uh, bract material. Um, and so because it, these enzymes are native to the actual plant material and the vascular material within the plant itself, uh, when you concentrate that BRAC, you're going to concentrate those enzymes as well. Okay. That makes sense. And is there any way to tell which hops are high in these enzymes? So this is interesting, and this is, a, this is something that we're studying right now. Um, there has been – there have been some, some sort of anecdotal and, and you know – Early experimental results indicating that uh, these enzymes seem to have some sort of relationship to hop variety, but uh, we are still trying to disentangle that from processing methods, processors, uh, age of the plant, and a bunch of different other things. So once we have those experiments finished at the end of the season, I will be able to tell you more, but at the moment we don't have that data. All right, fair enough. Okay. Now, last but not least, uh, this is oh, kind of... We got two, actually, but yeah. We have two more? Yeah. Oh, I only have one in front of me. I have our correction slash suggestion for a show. Do you have a question in front of you? Yeah. Give me. What do you got? So, um, how far away is the calculator similar to the water spreadsheets for a brew and water that'll accept some basic parameters like mosaic, pale ale, and then tell you how much enhancer hops like Sabro, Crystal, Chinook, Amarillo um, at, to add so you can hit the right oil percentages to make a specific flavor, ah. i.e., orange, tangerine, mango, uh, sway socks, uh, old feet, uh, whatever you're after. Um, and we actually do have some people that want those for their lambics because they are interesting and they change into interesting. interesting Interesting questions or interesting flavors later on, um, but uh, this is something that's on the horizon. And uh, Mark from Santa Cruz wanted to know if we have uh, specific oil hop oil data for specific hop lots. Yes, we do. That's on the uh, brewing cal or the hop lot lookup tool on yakimachief.com yep. or shop.yakimachief.com slash brewing dash tools, and you can see your lot analysis lookup. Um, but uh, whether a calculator is in development, you know, that's something that I eventually want to have and I will eventually want to be able to provide to the community. But frankly, we don't have enough really tight data yet because this is work that's uh, that's pretty new. Uh, and we are – I want to make sure that you guys get the right tools and the right information and I don't want to mislead anyone. So this is – Something that I am, am working on, but I do not have a delivery date because I want to make sure it's right first. How's that? Understood. Okay. Thank you, Mark, from Santa Cruz. And then finally, uh, Ken writes in. Uh, he says, good day. So I'm guessing he's not American. Hello. Um, <laughs> uh, in episode six of Hop and Brew School, um, he says, the host and guest possibly erroneously, uh, say that monoterpenes are in pesticides for aromatic, for aromatic purposes alone. And Ken says this is not entirely factual. Uh, yes, it may be so that they are added to certain pesticides for aromatic purposes alone. However, many monoterpenoids themselves have pesticidal properties. More specifically, certain monoterpenoids have been shown in many scientific publications to have insecticidal uh, properties when used as a fumigant. 
Some examples of monoterpenes that have insecticidal properties are uh, pugilone, linalool, estrogel, uh, citronellol, and transanethol. Um, many essential oils contain these compounds, such as basil oil, rosemary, cedar leaf, and eucalyptus, not just hopped, hop oils. Um, so Ken thought um, that you guys might like that information and, um, and could be a little more accurate in your podcast. Kind regards from Ken. What do you think there, Nick? And thanks for calling me out on my own show. <laughs> yeah. Um, Which, by well, the just, way, we don't mind. On, on all of the Brewing Network shows, we do love to hear from you, no matter what it is. So so d- don't be shy, uh, just like Ken wasn't. Go ahead, Nick. No, yeah, that's a, and it's much appreciated because you're, you're 100% correct, Ken. Um, so, and this was a, a you know, I, I misspoke here, um, probably because I was cracked out on coffee as usual. Um <laughs> But the plant produces these terpenes actually as a defensive mechanism for some uh, for some pests and particularly uh, insects, and so um, you know this this came I think this came out when uh, Lacroix was getting sued by some well-meaning but uh, woefully um, scientifically misguided individual. <laughs> yeah, uh, I believe. <clears throat> Sorry. Right. Um, uh, the issue is that these are natural insecticides, and so they're not. These are not toxic for humans. Uh, so linalool is in everything. It's in uh, shampoo, toothpaste, uh, lemonade. You know, it's in all these 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 things that we love and and use on the daily basis. It's not it's not lethal or even harmful to humans in any quantity that you would encounter in a normal uh, in, in any sort of normal situation. Um, so. Uh, the hops produce these, cedars produce these, rosemary produce these, ba- uh, basil produces these, eucalyptus produces these for the same reason. Um, all these compounds are, act as, uh, you know, anti-pest compounds, and they will help the, the, the plants survive an onslaught or even prevent an onslaught from mites, from locusts, from, you know, all these different pests that would normally destroy the, destroy the, organ, destroy the plant. Um, and so you can actually spray these on uh, to prevent pests from, from attacking your plants, or you can, in some cases, use them to actually kill ones that have, have started a low-level infection. So if you see, uh, like, some of the, the, the rose protectant sprays, they'll have, they'll be like, all natural derived from oranges or lemon and stuff like that. It has a lot of these compounds in that from the oil, from the orange oil, and it's really, really effective. Got it. All right. There you go, everybody. Don't go, just because you hear a chemical name, don't go crying wolf about cancer and everything else yeah it's i mean you know this thing is it it really drives me crazy that this that people are looking at things and saying oh it's got chemicals in it all chemicals are bad dude everything is a chemical Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. and it's not it's not it's just (laughs) i can tell how frustrated you get with this it's hilarious (laughs) it's you know anti-vaxxers yeah anti-chemistry anti-science anti-gmo people they just you know, sometimes it's an agenda, but more often than not, it's 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 just ignorance and fear. Right. And you know, if you just if you look into it, if you ever want to talk to anybody about it, like I can, I'm happy to do it. Uh, but but it's it's really difficult to change people's minds because these are emotional gut check beliefs. Sure. And yeah. It's really harmful. You know, and and these things are not like if you understand the chemistry behind it, if you understand the science, it take it's, it is difficult. It's not just an intuitive thing that you can think of. Yeah. But it's it's. You know, it's, it, it becomes clear. It's really, really, it's it's fascinating, and I think it, I think it's beautiful. But uh, you know, learn some science, people. It's important. <laughs> Don't be if you messing. This, you probably agree with me. So. Don't mess with Nick's science. No, mine. If you want to get Nick riled up when you when you join us at HomebrewCon, now you know what to bring up. God. Please. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for writing that in, Ken. And uh, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, but once again, you can send your questions into Hop and Brew School at thebrewingnetwork.com. That's Hop and Brew School at thebrewingnetwork.com. And uh, we'll make sure we answer you in a future episode.
please do, folks. I love hearing from you, and uh, I, I love the feedback, and I'm really glad y'all are enjoying this. So this is, a, this is quite a treat. Thank you. Yeah, we've been enjoying the show, and we want to thank you all for listening. Um, we're just getting a lot of positive feedback, and that's really why Nick and I wanted to do this show, uh, because we just thought we could help You know, with the amount of knowledge uh, that Nick has and the, the amount of people that we know that we can bring in here to talk about some of these complex subjects. You know, we'll, we'll help you guys make better beer. And I want to give a special thanks also to Yakima Chief Hops for making this possible for us. Uh, and of course, you can go to yakimachief.com and uh, check it all out. And you're, you're going to want to go there anyway, uh, yakimachief.com slash events to look up the, uh, the actual physical original Hop and Brew School. This is just its accompanying podcast. Uh, but Hop and Brew School taking place up in Yakima uh, over Labor Day weekend. And, and we hope to see you out there as well. So please come on out. It's a great time. Uh, and it's beautiful that time of year. Uh, and Justin, honestly, thank you to, to you and, and the whole crew at the BN because, you know, I really hope not to screw it up, but this is, this is an awesome experience for me as a longtime listener, uh, first time host. Hey, hey. uh, but, uh, <laughs> like you know, we really appreciate it and we appreciate the community. So you know, let's, let's see if we can give back. Yeah, that's great. And and we love doing it too. And you're doing a great job, Nick. You're nothing but positive feedback for you too. So, uh, keep it, com- keep it coming, everybody. Hop and brew school at the brewing network.com. All right. Like I said, that's about all the time that we have for today. Uh, share this podcast with your friends, go over to the brewing network.com for even more beer information and entertainment. Also get your tickets to BNA 14. If you're going to be out at homebrew con, uh, that's taking place, uh, at the end of June there, and I'd love to see you at our 14th anniversary party. And b- believe it or not, Nick, you've been around the Brewing Network for, I think, most of those 14 years. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, geez. Yeah, I was in I was in Mexico at the time, and you started this thing up, and I called in, and we did the Beer Olympics and a whole, whole bunch of stuff, so it's uh, <laughs> it's been a great ride. Yeah, if you want to be an Uber Brewing Network fan, play a little game. Go back and spot Nick Ziegler in early Brewing Network episodes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. We'll see you on the next episode. Take care of yourselves and your beer.